Get Up Nation. I hope you're enjoying the Get Up Nation podcast on www.anchor.fm. As a podcast host on over 20 platforms, I really enjoy how easy it is to use Anchor, how Anchor makes everything I need available in one place for free, accessible on your smartphone or desktop computer. Go to www.anchor.fm now. In case you didn't know, Anchor has creation tools that allow you to record and edit each episode. If you're concerned about the distribution of your hard work, don't sweat it because Anchor takes care of that too. If you're considering becoming a podcaster, I would highly recommend Anchor as your choice to begin sharing your content with the world. Get Up Nation. My name is Ben Biddick. I am the creator and host of the Get Up Nation podcast, where I serve individuals, organizations, and societies to develop and sustain resilience and perseverance. I'm the co-author of Get Up, The Art of Perseverance with former Major League Baseball player and CEO of Rurong Living, Adam Greenberg. The Get Up Nation podcast is brought to you in partnership with GotYour6Coffee.com, where Navy veteran Eric Hadley is committed to serving first responders, veterans, and their families through a variety of nonprofit organizations. No stranger to adversity, Eric has fused the necessity of coffee with his passion for public service. You're already purchasing coffee. Why not empower your coffee with purpose? Why not purchase coffee that not only has your six, but also has the backs of those who don a uniform of service for our communities and great country? Learn more about Eric and his freshly roasted award-winning coffee at gotyoursixcoffee.com. Welcome to this episode of the Get Up Nation podcast. Recently, I had the honor and privilege of speaking with Brad Warner. Brad is the author of Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen and numerous other books, including It Came from Beyond Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, and Hardcore Zen. A Soto Zen teacher, he is also a punk bassist, filmmaker, and popular blogger who leads workshops and retreats around the world. His writing has appeared in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and Alternative Press. He lives in Los Angeles, where he's the founder and lead teacher of the Angel City Zen Center. Our discussion on this episode of the Get Up Nation show focuses on loss, grief, meditation, and how people can be resilient even in the face of death. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Congratulations on the release of your new book called Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen. In this book, you explore your experience of learning that a friend of yours had died of cancer at the age of 48. You learned of his death just after arriving in Hamburg, Germany, where you're scheduled to give a talk to a group of Zen students. Will you take us through that experience and how it led to the series of letters that have become your new book? Okay, let me see if I can do that. I have been going on these tours of Europe for 10 years now. Since 2009, I got an invitation to go do talks in Finland in 2009, and I turned that into a little European tour, and I've been doing it every year. And the year 2014 was the one where two people actually back in America were people that I knew from the old punk rock scene. I was I was part of that scene in Northeast Ohio in the early 80s. I guess I still am, sort of. I learned that they were dying. I visited one of them a couple of times before I did the tour. And so I kind of knew what was coming. We all kind of did. And I'd been emailing with one of these friends throughout the tour, and then I stopped getting responses. So I thought, okay, well, this must not be good. And then pretty much the next thing I heard was that he'd passed away. And, and I was scheduled 
wandered around Hamburg and ended up in this pizza shop where I I had this diary that I keep on tour all the time. I just carry it around with me. And I wrote, I sat in this pizza shop in Hamburg and, and wrote this, what came out sort of like a letter to him, to the guy I just heard died. And a few years later, when I was trying to come up with a, an idea for a book, I decided to kind of write a book about really basic Zen stuff. And I wasn't able to get into it because I just kind of found myself getting bored by my own writing until I went back and looked at some other material that I had, including that diary. And I just, the idea hit me that to write the book about basic Zen as a series of letters similar to the one that started it all off. And that's how the book came to be. The first letter in the book is almost verbatim what I wrote in my diary. And the rest are not, but they follow along the same lines. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that. You discovered the value of meditation while immersed in the punk rock music scene. Will you share what led your interest in meditation at that time? How did that engage you, or, or how did you come across that in a way where that's something that you wanted to pursue and explore? Well, I kind of came across it by accident, almost. I had some interest in the subject because I was trying to be a philosophy major and I had some stuff that happened as a, as a teenager. My parents sort of sat me down and told me we had this terrible genetic disorder that ran in the family that could affect anybody who was born into the family, including me. So that sat off a lot in my mind. At the time, I wasn't really aware how much that impacted me, but later on, reflecting on it, I realized that was really the catalyst. So I was taking all these philosophy classes, and I saw this class called Zen Buddhism, which I I didn't know. I wasn't looking for Zen Buddhism or, or trying to... I'd barely heard of Zen Buddhism. I you know, knew, basically, that it was some Japanese religion. And I took this class, and it really it turned my head around. I'd been part of the punk rock scene in, in Akron and had played in bands, one band in particular, Zero Defects. And I got into that because I thought that these were the people at the time who had a handle on what was going on. I mean, they weren't incredibly brilliant people or anything, but they were taking a realistic approach to the world, like being honest and and kind of looking at things in a clear-headed way. And when I discovered the Zen people or the Zen philosophy, I thought, oh, these guys are doing the same thing, but they're taking it 10 or 20 or a thousand steps further and really, really digging into what this world is and what it means to be human and all this. And I liked the meditation practice that they did, and I just started doing it every day. Although I didn't tell people about it, which just kind of dovetails along with this book. Like, these friends of mine who I knew in the punk scene, I wasn't going around telling them, hey, I'm doing Zen now, and I'm really into Zen. I, I just kept it. I, I wouldn't say I kept it a secret, but I decided it wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to talk to people about because I don't want to be one of those guys who doesn't talk to you about their meditation practice. Will you share your experiences in Japan? And it sounds like you spent 11 years there? 11 years, yeah. Let's see, I originally went over there as an English teacher. I got a job with what they call the JET program, which is Japan Exchange and Teaching. And I'd been studying Zen for about 10 years by then in America with an American teacher. So I knew... Zen came from Japan, but my teacher had also said you'd be lucky to find anybody in Japan who will teach you Zen because Zen has changed in Japan and it's more about 
directing funerals and, and things like that, and you, you don't find many teachers who are serious about it. And for the first year that I was in Japan, I discovered exactly what my American teacher had said. In my second year, I got a job for a film production company called Tsuburaya Productions, which specialized in making giant Japanese monster movies. Like the head of the, the founder of the company had been the special effects director for most of the Godzilla films, and he was passed away by then, but the company carried on in that tradition, although somebody else owns the rights to Godzilla, so they made other films. So I worked there, and I was in Tokyo, that the first place I was in Japan was a smaller town. And in Tokyo, I found this teacher named Gudo Nishijima, who was one of the few people out there really teaching Zen, and he spoke English, and he taught in both English and Japanese. So I went to his English language classes because my Japanese wasn't that great at that time. And he's the one who, after several years of being with him, he decided he wanted me to ordain, which I initially thought was a crazy idea, but I finally kind of said, okay, let's do this thing. And I ordained and then I wrote a book about it. And then, <laughs> and then I came back to America and a lot of other things happened. <laughs> In reading your book and, and going through those letters that you wrote afterward, you have, I mean, obviously great humor and insight just had me roll in at times some of the things that you were talking about and your unique perspective on it. And how you describe how you never wanted to evangelize a dying person, you know, with your beliefs. But this book seems like a sharing of something that you have found in your life to be profound and helpful and keeping you resilient and facing challenges and adversity. And so how has the writing of this book honored your friend's life, helped you through your grief process, and now is helping readers gain an understanding of how they can grieve and grow after they lose loved ones or, or have adversity in their life? Wow. <laughs> It was good for me to do this. The character of Marky in the book is a composite of two friends who died, but there was definitely more of one of those friends than the other in the book. And he's the one I visited when he had his cancer, and she knew he wasn't going to live long. When visiting him, I had the notion that maybe we'd talk in depth about life and death and things like that, but it just never seemed right. And I, I don't, I don't exactly regret not doing that because I think I, I just was trying to read the situation and read what what we could talk about because if two people are very interested in having a discussion they can have a discussion and it can work out right but if, if they're not both fully into it it's not going to happen and you don't want to force it and so I didn't want to force this this topic on him because right you know, yeah. who wants that? Right. And so I never really talked to him about Zen or anything, but I later thought, well, there's there's a lot of things I could have said, and, and maybe I'll, I'll put that in, in a book. So putting it in a book kind of helped, because at least now I know it, it's out there. Uh -huh. You know, it, sure. it's not, it's out there for somebody who might be receptive to it now. Right. As far as any feedback on the book, what was interesting was I did, a tour, another tour of Europe this this year in June and July, and rather than giving normal lectures like I usually do, I decided it might be interesting to read the letters to my friend, because they're written from cities in Europe, and I thought, well, I'm going to some of these same cities, how about if I read the letters in the cities that they're written from? Hmm. And I did that and recorded it, still waiting for them to, to 
to give me the final word on the audiobook, but I've already turned it into audible.com, but it's going to be the audiobook. So the audiobook is, is read in front of these audiences. And the response I got from those audiences was really, it surprised me because I, I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen when I read this stuff. You know, maybe people would just be bored with it or, you know, maybe they'd feel like, oh, you should have prepared a better lecture than that or something. You know, yeah, I never know. And I got a really strong response. So I think the book is something special. You know, it's hard to say that. It sounds like bragging if you say that about your own work. But I kind of didn't know what I was getting into when I wrote this. You know, I just write it as well as I can and hope for the best. And then I see how it's reflected back by an audience and go, oh, I think maybe, I think maybe I did the right thing there. You know, I, so it's been really interesting to see how people respond to that. Yeah. Death, you know, is truly a mystery to us, and a lot of people speculate on what death is, and because of different ideologies, people embrace and things. But why is it important, from your perspective, not to speculate, but to embrace the truth of what we do know without that speculation? Well, you know, anybody can speculate about what happens after you die. I mean, that's usually what people like to speculate about, and I can speculate about it too. And in Buddhism, there's a tradition of belief, I suppose. And in Buddhism, generally, especially in the Zen tradition, doesn't concern itself too much with belief. So I kind of use the wrong word there, so I have to back up. But there is a sort of tradition about what happens after you die. But in the Zen tradition, as opposed to most other forms of Buddhism, that is really kind of just off in the background somewhere. You know, there's no equivalent to the Tibetan Book of the Dead in, in the Zen tradition. There's just certain ideas that happen. And I don't have any personal experience of remembering past lives or anything like that. So it would be silly for me to kind of speculate about death. And the fact is, it's kind of this great unknown, but what, what we do know is we're living this life, and this life is significant. And if you do believe, for example, in reincarnation, then this is the afterlife. So let's, you know, instead of talking about the next afterlife that we're going to have, let's look at this one that we, we have already. You know, so we, we have this, and I think this life is the, the more important thing to concentrate on and to investigate rather than investigating some sort of ideas you might have about what happens next. Obviously, this podcast here that we're focused heavily on helping people develop and sustain resilience and losing loved ones is certainly a profound experience that people all have to face. As you went through this process of writing and, and teaching, what insights do you have that help people to be resilient through their grief processes? Boy, uh, what insights do I have? You know, I don't know. Losing somebody is tough. You know, I mean, that's, that's so obvious, but when it impacts you, you're going you're gonna to feel it. And, and through the Zen process in general, we do a meditation that's called Shikantaza in Japanese, which just means just sitting. So you're actually trying not, you're not trying to gain insight or create mindfulness or do anything. You're, you're just trying to get into the pure act of sitting in and of itself with nothing else, <laughs> which, which means getting into the pureness of living as it really is in a, in a situation where it's a little bit more controlled, you know, you're sitting still yeah. and trying not to move. So, so it's, it's like looking at life and, and during that process, a lot of things will come up. Mostly when you start, it's boring. And, and I like to remind people of that because the rare exciting episodes in meditation 
publishing get a lot of press, you know, but, but mostly it's just boring. But you, a lot of things will come up. Your mind, after a while, gets kind of active. Most people have this, a lot of people assume that means they're doing something wrong in their, in their zazen, but they're not doing something wrong. That's just what happened. And the mind will start throwing up all sorts of stuff that, you know, old memories and just emotional traumas you might have been through and so on. And, and you learn to sit still with all that and just allow it to happen. And that sort of approach has been really useful when it comes to grief and loss and things like that, because a lot of things come up during grief and loss. And having had that experience of just allowing everything to, to come up as a will in my mind for so long, I see the same sort of things happen around grief and just go, okay, there's that, there's that feeling. I can just allow it to be, I don't have to force it away and I don't have to wallow in it, you know, like a pig in mud or something. I, I just allow it to be and that's been really useful. I don't know if it sounds that great when, it, when it's just spoken out loud, but just learning how to accept anything that comes into to my mind has been really useful in terms of when something really, you know, tragic comes into the mind. Absolutely. How does that acceptance of impermanence help us not only to live well, but also establish deep gratitude for the time that we've been given? Well, impermanence is a big deal in, in Buddhism. And one of the things that we sort of like to emphasize in this tradition is that everything is impermanent. So this conversation we're having is impermanent and the words that I'm just that are just falling out of my mouth are also impermanent. So every every second is is the experience of impermanence. So people sort of I don't know, when they're first introduced to this idea of impermanence, they sort of think of, well, permanent, you know, they they, they have this idea of permanence that that permanence is actually a thing and that impermanence is this sort of anomaly that comes along and interrupts your permanence. But that's not really the case at all. Everything is impermanent, you know, everything. So when it comes to to death, one of the ways that it's spoken about in the Zen tradition is is to say that death is happening all the time. So you can fear your ultimate death at, you know, whatever age you happen to die, and you can kind of get all worked up about what that will be because that's a certain particular point in time that, that, will inevitably happen, but you you also start to notice if you're working with this sort of outlook that every moment is a kind of death, and, you know, and it, and it just disappears, and you can't go back and, and find it again, so I don't know, living with that sort of outlook has been real useful because it, I, I no longer believe in permanence. You know, I, I only believe in impermanence, and, and I know that it's all impermanent, which doesn't depress me. You know, you'd think you'd get depressed by that, but it, it's actually like, oh, this is just, you know, this is just kind of this great forward motion mm-hmm. that I'm going through in life, and it all just sort of disappears no matter what I do. So I might as well enjoy the ride while, while it's happening is a better strategy. Yeah, it's profound when we stop trying to deny the fact that we're dying and it's helpful when we don't just pursue pleasure and run away from pain, but to actually accept everything that's happening as it is in the present moment is, is such a profound way to be resilient during these processes. And it's not a spiritual bypassing. It's not a denial. It's the acceptance of this reality that we're 
involved in. And really, that way we stay honest. We actually have a deep kind of connection with other people who are experiencing the miracle of what this is, whatever it is. And to have read your book and to learn from the insights that you've put forth and and what you're teaching, it's profound to really take on this aspect of impermanence, to experience that in our lives, to really treasure the people that we have these moments with, and then just moment to moment, that really does reduce fear, reduce anxiety, reduce these types of things, and leads to a much healthier mentality and and healthier relationships. So I I love what you're doing. I love your insights here. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's sort of a process of constantly letting go, you know, rather than sort of clinging on to things that aren't going to last anyway. Right. So you just just let go of everything. Yeah, there's definitely a liberation in that. And if when people truly understand that, it's invigorating, it's exciting, it's not a, it doesn't lead to a kind of depression. It does the opposite. So, So I hope that people listening here, if they are clinging to permanence, if they are trying to think that, you know, life will be improved somehow if I get a promotion or more money or whatever, if they can really center themselves in this present moment and accept what's happening there and really be present, they can truly find some powerful resilience and uh, some strong connections. So I love that you are sharing this with my audience who frequently is suffering from a lot of different things. So to lighten their burden is is great. And I'm grateful that you've come here to share this. Brad, I always end the show with six questions to help my listeners understand the why within my phenomenal guests. Will you run through these six quick questions with me? Sure. All right. Who are you thankful for today? Who am I thankful for today? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm thankful for you asking me these questions. Uh, you know, anything that allows me to share this, I think, is, is great. And so, yeah, let's pick that. Awesome. <laughs> that awesome. Sounds good. Thank you. Yeah. And now that we've covered who you're thankful for, what are you thankful for today? Well, I'm, I'm thankful that I get to live the life that I'm living. I, I was kind of sitting on the couch the other day going, oh, this is, this is exactly the life I wanted to have. And by that, I don't mean that it's spectacular, like everything is coming up roses and it's all wonderful all the time. But this is kind of a real life. You know, this is, this is reality. And that's interesting because, you know, what's the alternative? I don't know if there is an alternative. We're all just living in reality. Hmm. And how do you fuel the fire within you? Fueled fire within me. I was going to say something dumb like potato chips, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I, uh, they help. I just try to keep going. Yeah, potato chips, they help <laughs> at times. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I just try to keep going. And I don't know, the, the fire, I, I feel like uh, this practice that I have has kind of been really good. And you don't, I don't think of it as fueling fire, but I, but it is, uh, it is useful. You know, I sat my zazen this morning and I was grateful that I learned this practice a long time ago and and can keep on doing it so you know I guess that's some kind of an answer Mm. and what is one thing adversity taught you to value I think adversity taught me to value the the present moment as it is you know you can't you can't escape it so you might as well learn to like it yeah. <laughs> and and I don't mean that that sounds like fatalistic or something but but I think uh, learning to like it is actually great liberation because you're kind of like oh I like this <laughs> you know and my, my favorite example is like I'm sitting at the I'm standing at the bus stop waiting for this bus that never comes but I'm going to enjoy this experience <laughs> you know you know whatever whatever it happens to be and what are you doing today you may have never thought you could well I'm uh, talking to people about Zen today, you know, I, I I never thought that, I never had any great ambition to to 
teach this. It was initially just something I did for myself. And to be able to teach it is, is kind of interesting because I learn a lot that way. So when people like you, and I've got two more interviews coming up today, when people start asking me questions about it, I realize, oh, there's, there's more. There's more that I'm learning as I'm answering these questions. So that's really great. Awesome. And what will you do tomorrow? You may have never thought you could. <laughs> Actually, tomorrow we're doing a Zen retreat, and I'm leading it, so it's, it's over the weekend. And I certainly never thought I'd be doing that. It wasn't an ambition of mine, but it's, it's, it's a real interesting sort of job to have. I don't think everybody gets to, to, to do this kind of job, so that's nice. And my last question here, how can people learn more about you and your work? Oh, well, the easiest place to find me on, on the internet is my blog, which is hardcorezen.info. So it's .info because we couldn't get .com, so Hardcore Zen is the name of my first book, which came out in 2004. So hardcorezen.info has links to everything that I do, the YouTube page, the book, the blog, and all sorts of other stuff. Excellent. Brad, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you have some great interviews later today. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you.